We're gathered together on this day to rededicate this space of worship known as Estes Chapel. We say rededicate because this space was first dedicated 64 years ago today, on, not today, but on January 27th, 1954, this year. We have several here that actually were here on that day in 1954, do the math, and they're present here today. And I want to recognize just one of them as representative of all of our alums who could not be here today. I had one text me this morning that said, we, I, I couldn't be here today, but all of Asbury Nation is with you, heart and soul. <laughs> and so I want to recognize uh, Richard and Barbara Barker. Please stand. That was the day of 1954 right there, and Richard, can you find yourself in the picture there? (laughs) One cannot come to a glorious day like this without recalling Solomon's dedication to the temple as described in our text. What must it have been like to have been there in 953 B.C. as they sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep to mark the occasion? The temple was filled with multiple signs of God's faithfulness, God's covenant, God's redemptive work in their lives, just as this space is filled with so many markers of God's redemption in our lives and the covenant which we live in. So today I want to pause and remember, first of all, the place where Solomon's temple was built, and then secondly, the seven great signs which would have met you had you walked through that great sanctuary. The place, Mount Moriah. There's no more sacred place of the Old Covenant than the place where Abraham met with God and brought his son to the top of that mountain, that place called Moriah. There in Genesis 22, we meet one of the great emblems of substitutionary atonement. I love that word of God which comes crashing into the text when you don't know what will happen. You don't know what options he has. And suddenly God crashes in at his initiative, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the boy. I now know that you fear God. At that point, a ram was brought out and a sacrifice in place of Isaac, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that place was called Jehovah-Jireh, God will provide. The whole gospel is in seed form in that place. God will provide. And the whole history of redemption is there in seed form on Mount Moriah. This is the place, the very spot, which later King Great Solomon's temple would be built. Some even believe that the Holy of Holies was built over the very spot where that holy transaction took place so many, many years earlier. It's estimated that it was the most expensive structure ever built. In today's money, it would have cost $62 billion. Hear that campaign, folks. (laughs) We've got it easy. (laughs) Every surface was laden with gold. It took 30,000 laborers to construct a temple, even more than the 22,000 it took to construct the Taj Mahal. Its walls and ceiling were built with cedar, covered cedar boards, and 
The floor was cypress, all coverings sheathed or covered with gold. 90 feet long, 33 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Estes Chapel, if you count from the back all the way to that door, is about 90 feet wide or long, but the temple is about 15 feet wider than this space we're in. And you can imagine our ceiling is 26 feet. The temple's highest place was 45 feet. Just imagine it. If you're allowed to walk through that amazing place of worship, you'd have witnessed seven signs of the covenant. And these seven signs marked it out as a place where God met his people for worship, for atonement, and for instruction. What are these seven signs? Well, first, if you're to walk through with me in your mind through that beautiful gate and through the expansive outer court and up the stairs into the inner court, there in the southeast corner, you would encounter the first sign, the bronze sea. This was a magnificently large basin of water, eight feet high, 15 feet, 15 feet wide, supported by 12 bronze bulls. And the water was meant to symbolize the waters of the Red Sea, which they had, of course, crossed coming out of Egyptian bondage. The water would have flowed out of that upper basin into a lower basin and used for ablution as the priest would cleanse themselves before the daily sacrifices. The second sign you would see is the brazen altar of daily sacrifice, seven and a half foot square wide altar for sacrificing animals. It was here that the priest would lay his hands on the head of the animal and transfer the sins of the people onto the animal. Thus, it was here that a daily reminder of sins was made visible and the daily reception of grace made possible. It was here that we see both sign and symbol of both the holiness of God, which declares us sinners, and the grace of God, which declares us forgiven, all bound together in the symbolism of the altar. And then we climb the stairs again and enter the holy place. As Gentiles, we would have no access to this area as it's reserved only for the priest. But we're imagining that as we entered that sacred place, we find the third, fourth, and fifth symbols of the Jewish temple. There you'd find the table of showbread with fresh loaves laid out on the tables. A table of archaea wood completely overlaid with pure gold. It was also called the bread of presence. It was a sign of God's daily provision, the sign of fellowship, his provision in the wilderness wanderings. Then fourthly, you'd see the great seven-branched candlesticks, the menorah, which would burn day and night as a perpetual sign of God's presence, reminding them of that pillar of fire that had led them through the wilderness to the promised land. And fifth, you would see the altar for the incense offering also completely overlaid with gold and four horns on each corner of the altar. And incense we offered every day as a perpetual burning, day and night, is a sign of the prayers of God's people going up to the throne of God without ceasing. And then you would look up and you would see a beautifully ornamented curtain, 15 to 20 feet high, separating that inner holy holy place with the holy of holies only the high priest could enter that place and only on the day of atonement the one day and there as you move behind in your mind a holy curtain you would see what 
few ever would see, reserved for only the high priest, probably in Solomon's temple, only seen by less than 20 people ever saw this sight. And the sixth and seventh symbols. <clears throat> there at the center of the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, a box about four feet long, two and a half feet wide, and this was the central symbol of God's covenant with his people. Inside the ark were the two tablets of stone, uh, of course, the Ten Commandments, symbolizing the law of God. The jar of manna from the wilderness remind them of God's provision for his people. And then Aaron's budding rod reminding them that God chose the Levites to serve as the mediators and intercessors of redemption. And then finally, the f final seventh and greatest sign was not anything uh, inside the ark, but the lid itself, the great mercy seat. This was the most imposing part of the covenant uh, part of the ark. On the lid were these two impressive cherubim, completely overlaid in pure gold, towering over the ark with radiant faces, their wings pointing down, each of them toward the mercy seat. Amazing. This is the place where his God met his people, blood was offered, prayers extended, and redemption atonement secured. Wouldn't you have loved to go back and walk through that sacred place? Amen? Well, we come now to Estes Chapel. <laughs> Just you wait. <laughs> First, the place and the seven signs of God's covenant here. The place, Wilmore, Kentucky. Now, let's be honest. Wilmore, Kentucky may not have or seem to have the spiritual clout, the historical muscle or covenantal prestige of a place as sacred or holy as Mount Moriah. But the fact that this sanctuary was built here in this place between 1952 and 1953, along with sanctuaries however humble or grand all over the world, says something about the gospel of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? No longer is there a single place where God meets his people. No longer do we have to make our pilgrimage to Jerusalem. No longer are we looking for that one temple somewhere. But for us as Christians, we are reminded that Wilmore is no different than Mount Moriah. For through the gospel, a new and living way has been opened up. Because wherever two or more are gathered, he has promised his blessed presence. The gospel has turned the whole world into a Mount Moriah. Thanks be to God. These seven great signs of Solomon's temple, the bronze sea, the brazen altar, the table of showbread, the candlesticks, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat have all been replaced by seven new signs and living signs which we rededicate on this day. The first is the baptismal font. Really, we call it a stoop, which is here right in the center, right at the cross of our sanctuary. This has been, of course, replaced the, uh, the bronze sea that had dominated the Jewish temple. The waters of the Red Sea have been replaced in Christian architecture with a font filled with the waters of baptism. As you walk in, you dip your fingers into that spot and that you get the water and you remember your baptism. As you walk, you remember that you too have passed through the Red Sea. You too have been delivered from the bondage of sin and death. As great as the Red Sea waters were, the waters of baptism are greater because there's an even greater deliverance. So a greater water is here. 
Secondly, we have the Eucharist table here before me. In Christian worship, the table of showbread has been replaced by the Eucharist table. Here we see not merely manna from heaven, the daily bread of God's provision in the wilderness, but the bread of Christ's body broken for us. A greater bread is here. The blood of bulls and goats, which once poured over the horns of the altar of ancient Israelite sacrifices, now stands in a cup, recalling the blood of Christ shed for the sins of the world. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us once and for all. His blood for the redemption of the world, broken for us, his blood shed for us. A greater blood is here. Here in Estes, you'll notice on the table, we've replaced the phrase, do this in remembrance of me, which is found all across the church on Eucharist tables. We've replaced that phrase not because it was wrong, but because there was so much more to be said. Do this in remembrance of me only speaks about remembering something in our heads. Remembering a past act. Remembering Christ's passion 2,000 years ago. But we do more than remember in this place, don't we? We encounter the risen Christ. We place the words, remember Jesus Christ risen. Take from 2 Timothy 2, 8. The risen Lord meets us at this table. And as Luther said about the ascension, when he rose here, he didn't rise just from here to there on the, th- the throne of the Father. He did arise to the right hand of the Father, but he also rose from here to everywhere because his, he reassumed his omnipresence. And therefore, Christ can meet us at this table. And so those of us in the faith, we believe this feast is always tethered to his divine presence. As Bob Stamps, our former dean, used to say to us when he was our chaplain here, Jesus Christ would never throw a party in his own honor and not show up. (laughs) He does show up, praise God. And we take that bread in his presence until that day comes when we run to a higher feast. This bread, this cup, they're but the hors d'oeuvres of that great marriage supper of the Lamb which is to come. Brothers and sisters, a greater bread is here, the bread of life. Thirdly, the candle of presence. There it is. Asbury Seminary has kept the candle of presence in this chapel for many decades and never goes out. When we closed this chapel for renovation, we processed it over to McKenna Chapel, and today it was brought back, as you saw, at the head of the procession. Uh, J.D. Wald, another of our chaplains, once said to me, the only capital crime that the chapel staff could ever commit was letting that candle go out. (laughs) It represents the the presence of Christ with us. Solomon's temple, of course, had the, the candlesticks represent the light of the presence of God through the wilderness wanderings, that light that led them through the desert. But here, this reminds us that Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. That first light, the pillar of fire, lit up the desert of Sinai and guided his people to a promised land. But this light lights up the whole world and draws the whole of humanity to Christ through his blessed redemption. A greater light is here. Praise the Lord. Fourthly, this pulpit. This pulpit here was a gift from the 1948 
graduating class of Asbury Seminary. It's actually six years older than Estes Chapel. We didn't dare replace it. <laughs> we estimate that approximately 10,000 sermons and addresses and wedding homilies have been preached from this pulpit. Men and women from God, of God all over the world have stood this pulpit. And pulpits have always been central to the people of God in both Testaments because it's the place where we announce God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah rebuilt not just the temple and the walls, as we know, or the walls of the temple, but also he rebuilt the pulpit. Nehemiah 8.4, we're told that a high wooden platform was built for the occasion. and Ezra was called upon to proclaim the Word of God. He opens and he reads, and Nehemiah and the governor and Ezra the priest appointed 13 Levites to instruct the people in the law while it was being read. And if you go back to Nehemiah 8, you don't find a list of megastars, 5th century B.C. version of Christian celebrities. They're not household names then or now. This is the list we hear in the text. Jeshua, Bani, Sheribia, Jamin, Akuba, Shepatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah. These are Levites you do not know, but God put their names in the Bible. Because, Nehemiah 8, verse 8, they read from the book of law, the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so people could understand what was being read. Begin April 30th, just a few days ago, we've already had the entire Bible read in this chapel between April 30th and this morning. This is what this pulpit in Estes stands for, the proclamation of the Word of God, the whole Bible for the whole world. It is now known as the J. Ellsworth Callus Pulpit in honor of our seventh president and his great preaching legacy. And here in this assembly, we give to the world our students a whole new generation of Bonnies and Sharibias and Jamans and Akubos and Kalitas and Azariahs. That's the need of the hour. Men and women called to faithfully teach and preach the Word of God in the midst of challenging times and a broken world. There is a greater pulpit here. It not only recalls the law of God, but it proclaims the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not just the Word in text, but also the Word made flesh the gospel of Jesus Christ. A greater pulpit is here. The fifth sign, of course, are our hymn books, which you've already held. Worship has always been central to the people of God. That's why God put a hymn book at the center of the Bible. During the entire time of the remodeling of Estes, there was another work unfolding here, the Asbury Hymnal. It wasn't built with carpenters or trowels or sheetrock, but with word processing finale files, and prayer. So wonderful collection of Wesley hymns and one of the great theological treasures for our tradition. Hymns from the second century to the 21st century, all found in that place. And if you walk from our version of the outer court across in the, the, the plaza outside, you cross, of course, Charles Wesley there. We wanted Charles there to remind every generation that our theology must be sung if you want to grow a movement. Theology must be sung if you want to recite in your hearts, not just your head. We've always been a singing people. And then later on, we will sing, and can it be in this place? And you can't get much closer to the new creation than that. 
let me tell you. But here, we don't see any big heavy curtains separating our parts of this sanctuary, do we? Because worship in that first temple was carefully mediated by certain select people chosen to lead. But here, all of God's people engage in worship. Together, all of us join together to sing the songs of the gospel. The cantor songs of the Old Testament were glorious, but a greater song is here. Because God has put the song of redemption on our lips. The great, powerful work of God in Jesus Christ. I'm getting moved because it's true. It's true. The glorious work of God the Father, the redemption of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit is something that God's done in my life too. Yours. Six, the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no greater, more during sign in Christian worship all over the world than the cross of Christ, which is here and there. Archaeologists have found it scrawled on the walls of the, of the catacombs. It's amazing, isn't it? Even in the catacombs, they put the cross there. It stands as the new mercy seat for the people of God. It's at the cross where God meets his people in the ultimate act of redemption. The sacrifice of the Old Testament and the sacred blood that was spilt on the mercy seat of the altar in the covenant was the highest and holiest moment of the Old Covenant. But a greater sacrifice is here. The sacrifice of the Old Covenant was with bulls and goats and lambs had repeated over and over again. But this Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, came in the world and in one redemptive act took away the sins of the world. It need not be repeated again. Our one true unblemished sacrifice has offered his life once and for all for you and for me. Praise God. A greater blood is here. A greater sacrifice is here. Of course, on that day, when Christ died upon that cross, the last words he said, it is finished. In Matthew 27, 51, tells about a miracle we rarely talk about in the church, but that veil which separated the holy of holies from the holy place was rent in two from top to bottom. No man could have done it. God ripped it in half because he was saying a new and living way is being opened up. Christ, who had already shown up in the marginal places, a stable in Bethlehem, a Samaritan woman at the well, a table with Zacchaeus, the presence of sinners, and touching lepers. And all of that, he's nowhere shown up more to a hurting and broken world than in the cross. God was in Christ, not counting against us our trespasses, but nailing them to the cross. And so all of the signs of the Old Testament point to Christ. That's why they say he is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the rock out of which the water came in the wilderness. He is the stone the builder rejected became the cornerstone. He's the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. He is the Lord that David declares all his enemies we place under his feet. And the list could go on and on, but the great truth is that Jesus Christ fills the whole frame. He fulfills law, priest, king, and sacrifice. We cannot partition off the old covenant from the new covenant because once Christ enters in, all revelation bows to him and points to him. And finally, we come to the seventh and final sign, which is the altar itself. This, of course, goes beyond actually what contractors can build or construct here. 
the seventh sign, this altar, and what happens here, cannot be produced through any comprehensive campaign. The altar can be set up and put in place. They have done that. But the deeper sign which this altar represents, which cannot be turned on like these lights, is the fire of God falling down. That's what 2 Chronicles 7 is really about. The dedication of that temple was really a story that climaxed in what only God can do. Yes, 30,000 laborers did this and this, but ultimately it's revelation response, it's response and revelation. It's God breaking in to do what only He can do. The fire of God fell upon the people, upon the sanctuary, upon the sacrifices. The fire of God, it was glorious. It must have been breathtaking to see all of those sacrifices consumed by the holy fire of God. But one cannot help but remember on that day of Pentecost, when 120 believers were gathered in the upper room and the fire of God fell down from the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to say today that unless a fire of God falls down upon this generation and our students, then we will never be able to experience the power of God to transform the world. It must be the person of the Holy Spirit. A greater fire is here. Not there the presence of God's work, but the third person of the triune God to make us holy and fill us with his presence. For 64 years, this chapel has stood at the heart of this campus. Originally, as you saw in the video, there was a, beneath us was the library in the original structure, putting together the, the, the desk and the altar, the study of God's word and the worship of God brought together. So we have restored that. And so all beneath us as well has been renovated in our advanced research area, our PhD carols are now just below us. Our highest degree we offer is juxtaposed now with the highest expression of worship in Estes Chapel. The whole point is that we want generations of students at both altar and desk to experience the fire of God. We want to come in this place, be filled with the Spirit in this place, to be called into ministry in this place, to be healed in this place, all because the fire of God fell down on our students. Our students are like an ever-flowing stream in this place. We, we, around here, we call a generation of students three years. They come and go. Now, some live to see many generations. <laughs> we won't go there. But we call three years a generation of students. We've had 21 generations of students worship in Estes Chapel. And we pray today that 21 more generations of Asburians will experience the fire of God in this place. Not the fire of God falling on earthly sacrifices, but the fire of God making us living sacrifices. The fire of God which fills our students with His Spirit. The sanctifying power of God. And that's our prayer. That's the seventh sign that only God can do. His fire falling down upon this place and upon His people. In conclusion, this is my prayer. In this place, in Estes Chapel, May the sound of sin be silenced by the louder sound of forgiveness. Amen. In this place, Estes Chapel, 
May the weight of guilt be lifted by him who carries our burdens. Amen. In this place, Estes Chapel, may the yoke of law be broken by his yoke of grace. In this place, Estes Chapel, may the word of condemnation be overturned by the greater word of God's love. In this place, Estes Chapel, may the idols of this world be consumed by the presence of the true and living God. In this place, Estes Chapel, may darkened hearts feeling the gravity of sin become redirected hearts to that greater gravity of holy love. In this place, Estes Chapel, may those who are deaf to God's call hear afresh the call of God. In this place, Estes Chapel, may those who are broken find healing and wholeness by the Spirit of God. And most of all in this place, may all the ambitions of this world be consumed by the greater ambition to know Christ and to make Him known. Amen. That is our prayer for this sacred day. We celebrate this day with joy. After all is said and done, it's not about a building or a place, but the glorious work the great covenantal signs to which they all point of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us signs and seals of your work which astound us afresh and remind us anew of your deep work. May we today dedicate this chapel in this moment to come that fulfills all of that in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.